Well, thanks to everyone who participated this morning, even by sending in videos of the pastoral prayer and our scripture reading. It's great that if we're not able to be here, we can still participate in these meaningful ways. And thanks to Pastor Samuel and Jin uh, for leading us in worship with some classic old school hymns. Uh, It's so good for us to remember the great hymns of the faith that are so rich in meaning and in their words. And I, I sure appreciate those hymns as we were worshiping today. Well, we're coming to the end of Ecclesiastes, and some people are cheering. It's like, let's get on to the gospel or something good. Uh, But I hope it's been beneficial. I hope that it stirred you up. I hope it's goaded you a little bit, uh, just prodded you along in the right direction. And uh, we're going to kind of try and conclude it today. But I hope you turn to it uh, many more times as you read through this. Well, there's an author by the name of Douglas Adams. And I never, ever thought I would start a sermon by mentioning this particular author. Uh, He actually died in 2001. He was only 49 years old when he died. And he was a devout atheist. And he is probably best known for writing the book, which was a screenplay or a, a radio play and turned into movies, all kinds of things. Anybody know what the book is called? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I have a copy, and it's, uh, I don't necessarily recommend it. It's in the far corner of my shelf, and it's kind of a fascinating journey. Um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy essentially mocks the quest to find any meaning in life. That's really, I think, the whole, what I'm left with after reading the whole book is that it's kind of a uh, making fun of those who spend far too much time trying to find the meaning of life. Well, in the journey of the book, at one point, uh, the questers, those who are on the journey, come across a supercomputer by the name of Deep Thought. And Deep Thought was actually created by a pan-dimensional, hyper-intelligent species of beings whose sole purpose was to create a computer that could come up with the answer. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And so at one point in the book, uh, the characters all come together and they come to Deep Thought because Deep Thought is ready to deliver the answer after spending seven and a half million years trying to calculate the answer. And you got to imagine, like, Deep Thought isn't just a, a PC or a Mac. Deep Thought is like the size of a small city, seven and a half million years. And so they all assemble. They're ready to hear the answer. And Deep Thought warns them, you're not going to like it. And in the end, Deep Thought's ready to deliver. Everybody's waiting in hushed awe. And Deep Thought says, the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. And people are quite disappointed, as many of you are kind of surprised, because they're expecting something profound, something amazing. And it's hilarious because real fans of the book have spent far too much time exploring the meaning of 42, which I think is kind of ironic. But anyway, 42 is the answer. And people were obviously disappointed in the book, and so Deep Thought goes on to say, I've checked it very thoroughly, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question was. Interesting little twist. Interesting little turn. The quest to find the ultimate meaning of life is a waste of time because 
we often ask the wrong question. We often start from the wrong point. Well, we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it's the end of the teacher's quest. The teacher has been on a search, and uh, as the teacher has been searching, he's come across a number of obstacles to finding meaning in life, and we might remember them. Uh, The march of time, which is totally relentless, the certainty of death, the random nature of life, all of these he encounters. And so then he turns himself to pleasure to try and find the meaning and purpose and something to hold on to in life. But then he finds that pleasure is never satisfied. Pleasure is so greedy, it's never satisfied. So then he turns to knowledge because that seems noble and good. But then he finds that knowledge is exhausting. You can never know the final limits of what is to be known. And then he turns to work. And and then he discovers that work itself is futile because you work all your life and then you got to leave it to your kids and they might be fools. Not our kids, right, Doug? But lots of other people. And so he wonders, what's the purpose in all of this? The futility of it all. And so it's not that life is meaningless. It's just that you can't hold on to the meaning. It is hevel. It's vapor. It's smoke. It appears to have a form or a shape and then it's just blown away by the wind. And so the whole thing is just chasing after the wind. So after all of this journey, after all this pain that he has put us through, what is the conclusion of the matter? What is the answer that he gives? Well, here it is. And it's actually in the voice of the framing narrator, the second voice that appears in Ecclesiastes. Are you ready for the answer? Fear God, do what he tells you, and that's it. That's almost as satisfying as 42. Uh, That's it. That's his whole conclusion to the matter. Fear God, do what he tells you, and that's it. I don't know how that sits with you after all this questing, all this journey, all that he's discovered, all the pain that he's put us through, the disruption that he's brought to our lives. Maybe I was expecting something more, but this is it. Fear God, do what he tells you, and that's it. But here's the thing. The question in Ecclesiastes isn't actually about the existence of God. The author is not an atheist in Ecclesiastes. God appears all throughout the book and all throughout his journey. The question is whether God matters. Does God matter to life, to all of uh, what we experience under the sun? And that's really the question that he's pursuing. The answer to that question is vitally connected to a responsibility to God that goes beyond this earthly life, a responsibility that goes beyond life under the sun. So last week, we looked at the answer from below, the answer from under the sun. But this week, we need to break through the clouds. We need to go to life beyond the sun, life that's bigger than us, life that's more than what we can just see and hear and feel and experience in this earth. What is that kind of life teaching us? So the interesting thing I find in Ecclesiastes is when the teacher talks about God, which he does more than 40 times, he uses a word for God that is Elohim. He uses this word for God that talks rather than the covenant name for God, which is Yahweh. He uses a name for God that talks about God's role in creation, that he is sovereign over creation. 
He's transcendent over his creation. Elohim is employed to drive home the point that God is sovereign over all creation and thus is to be feared and worshipped. That's the big part of the point in Ecclesiastes. So the question is, is not, where do I find meaning in life? But maybe the question needs to be reframed. What is our duty in life? What is our responsibility to the creator of the universe? And if we find the answer to that, maybe other things will fall into place. So this is the answer. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to fear God? Just think about that for a moment. You don't have to shout it out. Uh, I just want you to think through that process of fearing God. It's interesting when we talk about that, I don't know what comes to mind, but I think of being afraid, being terrorized by God. Uh, the actual word in Hebrew means to flow out of the gut, which sounds very descriptive, doesn't it? Uh, to flow out of the gut. But we have that kind of expression in English too. That idea of the pit of your stomach kind of reaction. When you see something that is incredible, amazing, and a little scary, we have that pit of our stomach kind of reaction. Sometimes when we see something that we're really, really excited about, but a little bit afraid of, we have that pit in our stomach kind of reaction. That's the word that's being used here, is to flow out of the gut. It's something that moves us in our deepest being. It's that kind of fear. And I would like to say that it has nothing to do with terror, but I can't quite because there is a terrifying aspect to God as creator of the universe. And we want to unpack that a little bit. But here's the thing. The Bible is full of references to fearing God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I think you can go home today and look up all the references to fearing God. But generally, it's used in a positive sense. It's used in a, this is good for your life kind of fear. It's kind of like learning not to touch the hot stove, right? We have a certain fear of that, which is healthy and good because we don't want to get burnt. There is a healthy fear that preserves our life, that protects us. And I think the fear in scripture is actually a healthy fear of God, something that preserves our life, something that's meant to benefit us. I want to give you two examples of that. The first one comes from Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has declared that all the Hebrew babies must be killed at birth, right? The sons in particular. But there's a group of midwives that are heroes of the faith, and the midwives refuse to obey Pharaoh, and they actually preserve the Hebrew children. Now, why did they do that? Did they do it because they love kids? Probably that was part of it. But the Bible in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17 says they did it because they feared God. In other words, Pharaoh was a scary dude. He was a terrifying king. He could uh, demand your execution. But God was far scarier. God was far more terrifying. God was far more powerful. God was far greater. And so the midwives had a choice to make. And they said, you know what? We are going to fear God rather than man because God is greater. Here's another example, just in case we think it's a kind of an Old Testament thing to fear God. Actually, Jesus picks up this concept and he states in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body, 
because they cannot touch your soul. Instead, fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there's a little bit of a terror balance there, right? Don't be afraid of these guys that are bullies. Don't be afraid of these guys that are threatening to even kill you because it's better for you to fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, make sure your relationship with God is right and don't be so afraid of what's happening here. The rest will fall into place. I think we spend our whole lives being afraid of things. Uh, We are afraid of the march of time, of being forgotten. I I think we're afraid of the certainty of death when we really actually are confronted with it. I think we're afraid of the random nature of life and what will happen next and being out of control. But the idea is that God is bigger. God is actually much more terrifying than any of these things. And so to fear him puts the rest in perspective. Okay, here's an illustration that will break down if you analyze it too much. So don't overanalyze this illustration. Uh, The one time that I jumped out of an airplane at 12,500 feet and was accelerating toward the earth at 200 kilometers an hour, I had someone with me, by the way, and he was responsible for my safety. But the biggest fear I had in jumping out of the plane was losing my glasses. I mean, I'm hurtling toward the earth at terminal velocity, and my biggest fear is that I'm going to lose my glasses. And we were free-falling for just over a minute, flying, hurtling toward the earth, and I'm trying to hold on to my glasses. And then the guy finally deploys the parachute. And suddenly I had a whole different level of fear because the parachute didn't open. And it was just doing this Roman candle thing, like this. And the guy, I could hear him saying, come on, come on. And finally I was like, come on. And I forgot all about my glasses, as you can imagine. Now, I know that illustration breaks down a lot, but the idea is uh, I had something bigger to be concerned about, and it put all the other things into perspective. And for me, that's a little bit of what it means to have the proper and healthy and appropriate fear of God, because he's bigger, and we should be much more concerned about our relationship with him than even our relationship to death or anything else that we might encounter in the earth. Uh, so it's kind of like Veggie Tales. God is bigger than the boogeyman. And if we can get that through our mind, maybe that proper fear of God will release us from being so afraid of the other things we encounter. So fear God. Well, the second thing in that verse is this. Keep his commandments. And I can hear some people saying, here we go. The preacher in the church telling us how to behave, what to do right and what to avoid, what sins there are out there. Uh, But whenever we hear this, keep his commandments, I want you to think of the summary of the law. And I've mentioned this so many times before, and I hope we really take it to heart. Of all the commandments, the 613 commands that you can list in the Old Testament, the 10 commandments that maybe we know a little bit better, out of all the commands in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the summary is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Moses said it, and Jesus said it. That's the summary of the law. And so what does it mean to obey the commandments of God? It means to love one another and to love God. In fact, Jesus made it even more simple for us. Not easier. This isn't easy, but this is simple in that it's direct. Jesus says in John chapter 13, here's the one command. 
Here's your one job. You've got one job to do. Love one another as I have loved you. Do that. Do that. That's the whole fulfillment of the law. If we learn to love one another, and if we practice that, then we will fulfill the commandments of God. We will fulfill this verse. We will keep his commands. So don't worry about trying to squeeze the meaning out of life, to squeeze the meaning out of the things that we have. Instead, turn it around, because if we obey the command to love, then the purpose of our lives will become clear. If we obey that command to love, then the purpose of our lives will become clear. So the question uh, is not so much what is the meaning of life, but the question is this, how can I love my neighbor? That's the daily question. How can I love my neighbor? That's what Jesus asked us to do. So fear God, keep his commandments, and there's just kind of a, a bonus round right at the very end here. And the, uh, the framing narrator, narrator gives us this last final push. He says this, trust the judgment of God. And again, we think judgment and we think that it's a terrible, terrible thing to talk about. But judgment and the judgment of God can be incredibly freeing if we understand it properly. For God will bring every deed into judgment. I think I've mentioned this uh, throughout the series that one of my fears that I wrestle with, if I'm honest, is this random nature of life. Uh, this idea that at a, not even a moment's notice, our lives can go sideways. Uh, things can happen surprisingly. I mean, I've seen as a pastor, things happen in people's lives that you just wouldn't, wouldn't believe. And suddenly someone is out on the street or suddenly someone's whole life is falling apart or suddenly someone dies. And that randomness apparent randomness. It sometimes seeps into my soul and makes me afraid, makes me worried. But there's also this randomness that occurs where, like the psalmist, I would say, why do the, the, the wicked prosper and the righteous perish? Why does there seem to be such inequity in the world around us? And to answer that, uh, the teacher has given me this last final word. God will bring every deed into judgment. There will be a final reckoning. People will not, in fact, get away with murder, as the saying goes. But God will bring all things into justice. The judge of all the earth will do that which is right. And that gives me a great deal of comfort. But it's not an excuse to be lazy. We can't just sit back and say, oh, God will sort it out in the end. You know, we don't really need to do anything because God will figure it out. We'll just hand them over to God and the judge of all the earth will do what is right. We'll just get on with our own lives. We actually need to still be active in pursuing justice. One of my favorite verses, and you probably know it well, uh, Micah chapter six and verse eight, is really in many ways an echo of the end of Ecclesiastes as well. Micah six and eight says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What is the sum of all these things? It's to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. We need to act in areas of justice. And so when we see injustice, we can't just sit back and say, oh, God will sort it out. No, we need to give ourselves to justice. When we hear of women and young girls facing the violence of sexual abuse, we need to bring those deeds to light. 
when we hear of the increasing racism, and we've heard uh, again and again throughout the news, the increasing racism directed toward others in our community. We need to raise our voices as well as search our own hearts. When we hear of those who daily face oppression around the world because of their faith in Jesus Christ and for naming the name of Jesus, we need to pray and stand with them in solidarity. So this last line in Ecclesiastes isn't an excuse. It isn't just handing it over to God to deal with it. It's a reminder that we need to work toward justice. But then after all that we can and should do, we recognize that there will still be injustice in the world. And we leave that up to God to solve because we'll never solve it ourselves. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes, uh, he's explored everything that life has to offer. And he's done it on our behalf because he was in a position where he could, a position that none of us will ever experience. The kind of wealth and the kind of power, the kind of opportunity that he had is actually amazing. And in the process, he has disrupted our lives and he's been goading us to move into the right direction. And so his conclusion and our conclusion today is this. Fear God, do what he tells you, and that's it. And remember that God will bring final justice in the end. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize today that you are an awesome God. That you are creator of the universe. That you are greater and bigger and more powerful than we could ever imagine. We thank you that you have moved that greatness and that power in love for us in sending your son, Jesus. And that although we recognize and respect and and stand in awe and wonder at your authority and your power, we can also say that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk in that reality. Father, also help us to walk in the reality that you're bigger and greater than the problems that we face, even the great problem of death, because our Lord and Savior has conquered death by his resurrection. Father, also help us as we go from this place and as we go about our lives to love one another, just as Jesus loved us, so that we might fulfill the law and bring glory and honor to your name. Pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.